1: Scott Ravnitz, the director of the Ellison Center for (coughs) Russian East European and Central Asian Studies at the Jackson School. Uh, And welcome to our panel tonight on the Russian Intervention in Syria, uh, Explanations and Implications. The event uh, that's the topic for tonight represents the convergence of two major geopolitical struggles that have gone on for the past five years or so. Uh, on one hand, there's a war in Syria, which has involved neighboring countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. More recently, there's been a confrontation over Ukraine that has involved Russia, and the US, uh, and NATO countries. The uh, Russian intervention in Syria, which began on September 30th last year, about the time uh, classes started here, represents the convergence of these two. Major geopolitical uh, struggles now in one place. Uh, it's looking like uh, a proxy war, even more than before, as Russia has taken a side of the Assad regime, uh, as are several other players, while a variety of other countries are uh, supporting various opposition groups. Since uh, the Russian intervention began in Syria, the Ministry of Defense in Russia. Uh, claims to have carried out 5,600 sorties through uh, January 15th and launched 97 cruise missiles on various targets. Who exactly are those targets? The Russian Ministry of Defense claims that it is targeting terrorists and ISIS. But U.S. officials claim otherwise uh, and have have argued that only about 30% of uh, the Russian bombings have targeted ISIS while 70% have targeted other rebel groups, including so-called U.S. moderate rebels uh, and uh, rebels backed by Turkey, it appears that Russia and the U.S. are using different definitions of uh, who the enemy is, and Russia tends to have uh, a wider definition of what it considers a terrorist, to also encompass what other countries consider merely rebels. Amnesty International, meanwhile has collected evidence uh, showing that Russia has carried out some indiscriminate attacks on residential populations in six areas where it, it did an investigation, discovered that at least 200 civilians were killed. So uh, in trying to, to unravel this very complicated situation, uh, I'm just gonna lay out some of the thinking, some of the commentary about uh, what Russia has been doing in terms of what motivated it to get involved in Syria and what the implications of that are. One set of explanations is broadly domestic. One argument is that uh, Putin is intent on keeping his approval ratings up and given the nationalistic fervor that has overtaken the country recently, he has to keep on escalating. And as the war in Ukraine has kind of reached a lull, he has to do something else in order to put something on the evening news and uh, keep people riled up. Uh, Another explanation for the Russian intervention is that Putin wants to set a precedent or at least prevent uh, a different precedent uh, of the overthrow of leaders of authoritarian states. Putin for many years has railed against the overthrow, peaceful or otherwise, of leaders of sovereign states, including uh, most notably the overthrow of Yanukovych in Ukraine uh, along with the uh, overthrow of Mubarak in the Arab Spring, uh, and Gaddafi in Libya. So, by getting involved in Syria and in support of Assad, in support of the incumbent regime, this is a way of drawing a line in the sand uh, and trying to prevent one more authority from being toppled. Clearly, there's also a, a personal interest in, in stopping that precedent, which he sees the U.S. is, uh, is being involved in, uh, so there's a selfish motive as well. Another domestic explanation is that uh, Russia is trying to stop the spread of Islamic radicalism. Within Russia, uh, uh, there are uh, various groups who've been uh, organizing around uh, the idea of uh, Islam uh, and it's been a threat to the Russian um, polity for uh, or at least uh, 15 years, so uh, in one sense, uh, Putin may be trying to set an example, and also going after people who he is afraid may end up in Russia one day after the Syrian conflict ends. Uh, a wider array of explanations can be grouped under the rubric of international ones. For one, Syria and Assad in particular are longtime Soviet and Russian allies, and this is simply a way of showing support for a partner. It's also a way of maintaining a foothold in the Middle East, which the Soviet Union had but appears to be uh, slipping away from Russia's grasp as its power ebbs away. Another strategic element is that the last remaining Russian naval base in the Middle East, in the whole Mediterranean region, in fact, is uh, the Tartus base located in Syria. uh, and Russia wants to prevent that from falling into enemy hands should the regime, regime collapse. Russia also seeks uh, to maintain global status. Uh, Putin has worked hard to ensure that Russia is a major player on the world stage and is involved in complicated uh, global issues and therefore is is trying to do what it takes to make sure that Russia will be consulted, uh, asked nicely uh, and involved in any negotiations about what ultimately happens in Syria. Uh, another possible explanation is that Russia is trying to distract attention away from Ukraine, possibly to link things going on in these two theaters of battle, perhaps hoping hoping that Russia can uh, bargain down the road with countries that are supporting sanctions against Russia and perhaps offer uh, a bargain in which Russia, for example, helps uh, ease out, Assad and other members of the regime, in exchange for uh, favors on the Ukrainian front, that might include acknowledging uh, the Russian Russian sovereignty over Crimea, or reducing or ending sanctions against Russia. Another part of what's been going on is that Russia is able to show off its uh, new technology as part of a military modernization, which uh, which has allowed Russia to reassert its influence in uh, post-Soviet countries, now it's able to show that it's able to use uh, state-of-the-art technology even farther away from its borders in ways that both please people at home and show other countries that Russia is still, again, a major player. Another possibility is that Russia, maybe Putin in particular, is interested at uh, jabbing at American power, acting as a spoiler by getting in the way of uh, American and its allies' plans, by killing rebels possibly deliberately that are backed by the US. It's a way of constraining American policy uh, and resisting what Putin might see as global domination by a set of powers led by the US. And there's a third category of explanation uh, which is neither domestic nor international. and might just have to do with uh, the personality of Putin himself. Perhaps he just wants to be tricky and keep people like us guessing about his motives because he always offers interesting puzzles. faculty. A separate question uh, for motive, motives is whether Russia today is acting out of strength or weakness. Uh, for the former argument, uh, it may be that Putin is savvy about what Russia is capable of pulling off and uh, where its limits are. Fundamentally secure in his power after all, his popularity rating is about 80%. And so the action in Syria is a way of pressing Russia's advantage. and uh, involves foresight in linking uh, the figures in Ukraine and Syria. And according to this logic, Putin has a long-term plan uh, about how uh, the war in Syria or, or Russian involvement in Syria is going to end in ways that might benefit Russia down the line. The counter-argument says that Russia's actions in Syria are an act of desperation. That Russia fundamentally is insecure. Uh, Putin is afraid that his popularity rating might fall down below where it is now. Uh, and that he's simply making things up on the fly. <coughs> and he got involved in Syria because it was possible, but does not <coughs> have a, a plan for how things will eventually be resolved. And so related to this, uh, commentators are divided about whether this is a brilliant move by Russia or a blunder. Those who argue that it's brilliant uh, say that Russia can uh, kill the militants that would otherwise uh, be interested in flowing into the North Caucasus after the war is over. Buttress, a uh, loyal ally in the region, gain leverage over other major powers which you previously didn't have, and ultimately end sanctions and restore a position in the world uh, in the Middle East. The blunder argument says that Russia has entered a quagmire. Russia's actions are inflaming the Muslim world, which will therefore backfire in the Russian domestic population. It will drain uh, Russia's budget, especially a complicated thing at a time when oil prices are at record lows and Russia's heavily dependent on those revenues. Therefore, the future looks bleak and we should should expect a replay of Afghanistan in the 1980s, which would not end up um, pretty for anybody involved, especially Russia. So with that, um, I'm going to pass this on to the panelists. I posed several questions to them to uh, correspond to their areas of expertise. In the domestic realm in Russia, I asked them to discuss what the possible domestic motivations are for Russia's actions, how it's being received at home, and the implications for regime stability and the Russian economy. In the international arena, how does Syria sit with Russia's other recent foreign policy moves? What does this mean for Russia's status as a great power and its influence it in the Middle East? and what are the implications for Russia and the West? And and then in Syria itself, how has the Russian intervention affected the course of the civil war, if at all? What are the prospects for the, a negotiated settlement? Is it, are they worse or better than they were before Russian involvement? And how does the uh, ongoing Saudi-Iranian uh, confrontation affect Russia's position and vice versa. So there are a lot of questions on the table and uh, we have three people who are going to help us uh, try to answer them. Very briefly, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they're going to speak. Uh, Bradley Murray is an assistant professor of political science and the director of the program in Global Development Studies at Seattle Pacific University and a PhD from the political science department here. His research focuses on legal reform Political economy of foreign aid and economic development in the former Soviet Union and China. Professor, professor Christopher Jones is my colleague and associate professor in the Jackson School. He's a specialist on international security, arms control, and NATO, and he's written on Soviet foreign policy and Soviet influence in Eastern Europe. And Christian Coates is a Baker Institute fellow for the Middle East at Rice University, right? He's also an affiliate professor at the Middle East Center here at UW. His research focuses on the Persian Gulf states, international security, and non-military challenges to regional security. Previously, he worked as a senior Gulf analyst at the Gulf Center for Strategic Studies and as co-director of the Kuwait Program on Development, Governance, and Globalization at the Gulf in the Gulf states at the London School of Economics. So, with that, uh, I'd like to uh, ask Brad to say a few words. All right.
2: <clears throat> can does this can you hear me or no? Yes? Smited? All right. Um, sorry, I'm going to sit just because I'm very tall. So if I am over there, I'm going to be leaning over the whole time. Um, it is a great question and it's a remarkably complex question and the number of variables uh, that are at play make it an incredibly hard uh, question uh, to uh, basically deal with. Um, I'm going to basically try to go through three different areas. The first, the question of decision making in Russian foreign policy, trying to understand who is making uh, these decisions. Uh, we oftentimes, tribute Vladimir Putin um, all agency, um, that he is in control of everything. And before we can really answer anything, we have to at least go through the basics as to who is making those decisions and what that means. Second, looking at the domestic political impacts very briefly, um, not just Syria but also in light of the question of Crimea and how that may have played into this decision. Um, and finally, looking at where this is headed in the near term and why this is such a double-edged sword. Um, on the one side, what we see is significant benefits internally, politically, for Putin and for this very unique type of of leader legitimation that's going on. On the other, uh, we have uh, the sheer economic nightmare that Russia is in and is going to be going through for at least the next year, possibly much, much, much longer, um, and how this significant amount of military spending is playing out and the negative implications it's having for a country that, as of this morning, um, declared a 10% across-the-board budget cut in every department, including the military, which was excluded from the earlier draft 2016 budget. So things are a little bit tense, uh, obviously, in the Ministry of Finance right now. Um, So let's take a look. Let's start off by just quickly looking at um, understanding how Russian foreign policy decision-making works. We obviously can go back and look at the Putin era, or the, the Yeltsin era. The Yeltsin era, obviously, we see essentially a weak leader and a strong set of interests. Um, significant amounts of negotiation, contestation, both within Yeltsin's court, and then subsequently as well uh, within the Duma, etc. Uh, Putin's great success, of course, as we've all seen over the course of the last 15 years, has basically been increasing his vertical power has been the remarkable amount of centralization that he's done, how much the state has become an autonomous actor. Um, so the first theory is basically those who say, well, it's Putin. This is, this is Putin, a man who's fundamentally consolidated power, and by and large, pointing to events in Crimea and Ukraine. He has all agency. He's able to do it. It's a minority view, but it's one that we, we should consider. Um, second, there's the idea, which uh, is becoming more and more popular in the literature, the idea of Kremlin incorporated. Uh, that we have a unified set of interests, of actors, uh, that essentially um, share uh, an interest in maintaining regime stability and at least some broad shared interest in terms of foreign policy. This wouldn't just be Putin. This would also be the security services, the so-called power ministries, uh, the energy industry uh, and uh, the, the weapons export industry. And by and large, foreign policy would be seen as an outcome of negotiation between, uh, between those. Um, a third is a viewpoint that seems to view uh, Russian foreign policy as simply domestic authoritarianism results in expansionist authoritarianism abroad. Um, That we can simply look at the nature of the regime by itself um, and this simply can explain that Russia is going to be continually antagonistic and expansionist. Um, The fourth, which is the one that I generally lean towards is the idea of taking a much more nuanced look at the state of the governing coalition in the Kremlin um, and looking at uh, basically foreign policy as an outcome of to some degree um, who is in, who is out, and who has power at a particular period of time. We all know that Kremlinology doesn't have the best history, um, but we have improved over the last 20, 25 years in terms of the ability to look at interest group power and particular policy outcomes. Um, The strongest example in support is looking at the shift from the period when Medvedev was quote-unquote president, um, up until when Putin basically took power. We saw a time during the Medvedev period where fundamentally we see a balancing, at least to some degree, between the liberal, uh, a liberal reform element as well as the power ministries. The Putin era has basically seen the power ministries, the Siloviki, uh, the FSB military contingent come back with a vengeance. this generally is basically viewed as having a significant amount of impact on the type of foreign policies that Russia has taken in Crimea, in uh, Eastern Ukraine, as well as in Syria. That's the framework that I've basically uh, have basically followed. Basically, think is is fundamentally correct. Um, that we do see that Putin has diminished the size of his governing circle. Um, his broader coalition has been diminished in power, <laughs> and we have a very small number of decision makers um, that are representative of those interests, ultimately making those decisions, um, which results in a couple of things. One is that there is going to be a domestic politics focus here. If we, historically, really, the Putin era, if you remember back to the Yeltsin times up through the early 2000s, what we see is um, essentially a simple social contract. Uh, The Russian population agrees to let uh, Putin and friends essentially run uh, run the country, not always exactly uh, uncorruptly, um, but things got better, standards of living improved. Um, Income levels improved. Pensions were paid. Pensions increased. Um, And this all really worked out quite well up until about 2012, uh, or until when the Russian economy finally basically uh, experienced some uh, significant, significant problems. And by and large, uh, what that has resulted in is very much a need for a focal point for both the stability of the governing elite as well as a focal point for the broader population uh, in terms of, hey, we're basically still behind this guy. The polling from 2013-2014 showed that a majority of Russians did not want to see Putin around after 2018. Uh, Time to go. Um, this was a significant problem. That combined with economic stagnation uh, is not exactly a recipe for maintaining stability over the course mm-hmm. of, of of your of your premier of your presidency. Um, conversely, we look at the polling that's come out uh, from Russia's uh, L- the Levada Center, Russia's main pollster, um, since the events in Crimea. And as Scott noted in his introduction, yes, the approval rating is over 80%. Particularly interesting, though, is a poll that came out just about two weeks ago, looking at Russian views of patriotism. Um, The question: Do you believe that Russia is a superpower? The country. The the, the proportion that said yes or probably probably yes uh, is now roughly over 60%. A huge increase from two years ago. On pretty much every major score, the Russian population is exhibiting significantly higher levels of patriotism, significantly higher levels of overall nationalism and significantly higher levels of support for the regime, for uh, for the broader regime. At the same time, we see a much smaller space for anything resembling uh, broader political opposition. Um, interestingly enough, in light of uh, the economic situation it's, uh, and events in Syria and events in Crimea, um, one would expect, particularly the, with the collapse of the ruble last year, and as if you've been following it daily, it's getting worse, um, the Russian population to be surveyed about 2016 and expect that it wouldn't be doing as well as 2015. They'd have a relatively pessimistic outlook. Um, Only 8% of Russians in a poll released last week said they expected 2016 to be worse than 2015. Um, which is shocking, really, in light of the numbers that have been coming out, et cetera. Um, majorities expect no change in government. Uh, majorities basically say that they support intervention in Syria. The most interesting fact about the Syria number is that that number, month by month, has been growing. Um, there was relatively low levels of support at the outset, Every single month we've seen the poll, every single month we see an increase in Russian support for intervention. Um, That is very, very good news for the Kremlin. Um, One of the other arguments with regard to Syria has been that um, as things in Crimea, uh, and particularly over in uh, eastern Ukraine and the Donbas region, have gotten more bogged down, that this was a strategic miscalculation, uh, that the Kremlin did not realize how difficult things were going to be in places like Lugansk and Dnepropetrovsk. And as things have gotten slower, a little bit more embarrassing, um, Goal has been to basically reframe the narrative of Russia's superpower status away from the Ukraine question towards something new, fresh, and a lot more manageable. Um, and uh, that uh, seems to have uh, some degree of weight in terms of looking at and the monitoring of Russian media, how quickly the media turned from discussions of Ukraine and Crimea towards all Syria all the time. Um, it's been very fascinating to watch. So if we do see these sort of short-term gains, gains for the regime, and we do see that this decision making is basically being done by a coalition of interests that are focused upon regime stability, the question becomes, can this be maintained in the short, medium term? And that's where we ultimately come to the question of the current state of the Russian economy. And I've pulled some figures that I was just in terms of, in terms of the reality of this. And we really have to look at uh, a very, very scary situation in terms of the state of the Russian economy today. Um, the Russian economy, size globally, comparatively, is now 15th. Um, that is smaller than Mexico. Um, it's rather difficult to support a superpower's military budget on an economy of that size. Um, real disposable incomes are down. Nominal wages are below where they were in 2005. Retail sales are lower than in 2009. Federal budget receipts are at 2006 levels. The average Moscow apartment has fallen 16% below 2014 levels, and more than half if you do the numbers in dollars. And office rents in Moscow and Petersburg are now at 2002 levels. When we put that in the context of Russia's overall economy, we also have to look at the percentage of GDP that's going towards military spending. Russia is the 10th largest uh, spender in terms of percentage of GDP at 4.5%. And for a country that is essentially stuck, is stagnating economically, this is a major, major loss in terms of investment in technology, investment in human capital that is fundamentally necessary. Now, we can conceptualize the Russian economy in a number of different ways. We could view it as a middle income trap, as a situation where um, the drivers of growth have just run out, the oil and gas sector, and so on and so forth. Uh, But contributing that amount of GDP towards defense is simply uh, is, is is simply uh, going to have some severe negative implications. Now Russia's tried to basically offset this with the so-called Asian pivot focusing on China, et cetera. Um, the trade relationship has not, has not really burgeoned as much as Russia had hoped. Um, Russia does not receive nearly the attention from China that Russia gives towards China. China has a lot bigger fish to fry um, than its uh, northern neighbor. Um, and uh, this really hasn't succeeded in terms of dealing with uh, both the implications of stagnation as well as the implications of uh, broader, uh, of the broader sanctions, etc. Um, what we're ultimately going to look at, and what's going to be, and I'll sort of just finish off on this on this point uh, in terms of in terms of the chaos, is looking at the budget. Um, is is this adventure in Syria going to be able to be maintained? Um, over the course of the next one, two, three years, um, over the course of one year is even questionable in terms of the numbers. One of the things that I kept thinking about over the last year, every time I heard about Russian defense uh, modernization, Russian defense spending, was ultimately the question of, well, where is the money coming from? Where is this? Where? Where is this? Where is this being funded from? Um, and the question basically is that um, it, it wasn't. Um, we see that Russia does have significant reserves. We don't have to completely panic. Russia has two years of reserves. It has a rainy day fund of $67 billion, uh, which the finance minister today stated, yes, we can. We could easily go through that, all of that this year. Um, but we can basically handle and deal with our imports. Um, but Russia does have, have that ability. Um, at the same time, um, there is the situation of uh, a declared 10% budget cut is going to hit. It's going to hit the military. Um, and that does raise questions. That does raise <laughs> questions, not just about Russia's military capabilities, um, but very much about Russia's uh, the unity of Russia's ruling coalition. Um, the power ministries that are very much involved in foreign policy decision making are not exactly going to take kindly to a 10% cut uh, in that spending. We also saw the contention that essentially the Russian budget for military intervention in 2015 was actually on target. Um, The numbers are very suspicious uh, as as whether it actually was a hard budget constraint but we'll see how that basically goes. Um, The broader concern for the military spending if it isn't cut um, is one of the real key areas for essentially maintaining Maintaining order, maintaining popular support is, of course, the pension budget. Um, and that's an area where, which will be very interesting to see over the course of the next year, whether or not Russia will be able to basically maintain and continue uh, its pension spending. Um, when pensions were cut in earlier years, we've seen significant amounts of social disorder. Uh, we've seen significant amounts of problems against the regime, and that's going to be a very big question. Um, the current finance minister Anton Solyanov, has been very, very vocal um, and frank about his concerns with the, about the pension budget and the budget as a whole, um, and the finance ministry, uh, to some degree, is. Uh, not very much on board with a lot of what's going on. It's one of the sort of cracks that we see. Um, so the question ultimately is: Is uh, this going to be able to work? The budget for this year for 2016 was based around an, uh, a per barrel oil price of 40 to 45 dollars. That was ordered today to be cut to an estimate at around 25 dollars. Um, if that, if if oil even stays around that level, I mean we're seeing very terrifying projections of oil dropping even below that. Um, so. Uh, whether or not that can even possibly be incorporated into, into Russia's uh, sort of near-term spending and and maintain all of the government's commitments is a question. In my view, if the government's unable to basically maintain pension, pension spending and it's already essentially kicked out science and technology and education spending, um, then yes, we will begin to see greater cracks within the facade, greater cracks within the governing coalition. Not necessarily, and I don't think we will see popular, a significant popular opposition, um, but this would be something that could uh, cause significant problems for the regime uh, internally. So with that I will turn it over for a less within Russia inside Russian baseball discussion. <laughs> Thanks. Chris. Well thank you. I will stand up.
3: So um. last Friday the uh, Russian government posted the text of a, an agreement Uh, signed by Vladimir Putin and what is left of the Syrian government uh, headed by Bashar Assad. Uh, This is a document secretly signed in the late summer of uh, 2015 that provided for the stationing of the Russian military uh, in uh, Syria to give them an uh, an air capability for carrying out the actions that Scott um, identified. The agreement um, exempted all the personnel of the Russian forces in Syria uh, from the jurisdiction of the Assad regime. They're not subject to uh, Syrian law on their conduct and and so forth. And the agreement also exempted uh, Russia from any claims from anyone about damage done, uh, accidental Destruction of of, uh, targets and the damage to people and and property. The publication of this document is uh, important for two reasons: Uh, its specific contents, which I just mentioned, uh, and the fact that its publication provided a very clear contrast to the military actions of U.S. and French uh, aircraft, which are carrying out combat missions episodically over. Uh, Syria with no authorization from the existing government in Damascus, which is still the legal government of uh, Syria, and no authorization from the UN uh, Security Council. So publication of this document indicates that uh, it provides a a legal justification uh, which becomes a a political justification for an indefinite Russian uh, presence in uh, Syria. And I think also the uh, zone that uh, is claimed by the uh, Islamic state, which controls parts of Syria and parts of uh, uh, Iraq. Uh, That agreement, uh, the document, is based on the fact that at Tartus, they have something to work with, a, a facility that's been there since the Cold War. As Scott noted, they lost their equivalent facilities in Egypt. Uh, if the Assad regime were to disappear, it would be very difficult to sustain an expeditionary force um, without uh, that kind of uh, reinforcement uh, uh, capability. That also happens to be in a province, uh, Latakia, I'm, I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is where the Alawite Shia population uh, is concentrated, maybe two to three million people. people—and This is the political base of the uh, uh, Assad uh, regime. Uh, Back in the good old days of the Cold War, I used to uh, study uh, similar agreements signed by the uh, Soviet Union with um, regimes in Eastern Europe and Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Some of that material has come out in archives after the uh, uh, Cold War. But basically those agreements provided similar conditions which allowed the um, government in Moscow to provide assistance to an unpopular local government facing a combination of real domestic opposition uh, and uh, real support for that domestic opposition that came from outside. Uh, That could be NATO in the US, it could be Al Qaeda in Afghanistan supported by uh, the US. Uh, So um, my point here is that uh, Moscow has had a, a, a long experience in keeping regimes uh, like the Assad regime in power in in very difficult uh, circumstances. Uh, In placing Russian forces uh, in Syria, uh, Russia has also put itself at the center of all these other problems in the Middle East The Christian may talk about, the connections to Iran, the Islamic State issue, oil issues, the Saudis, Shia, Shia, uh, Sunni uh, conflicts, and, and so on. Uh, to me, the explanation um, for uh, Russian policy that uh, I find persuasive is uh, two uh, uh, interviews that uh, uh, occurred uh, very recently in connection with the publication of this document. One is an interview that uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, gave uh, to the uh, Russian news agency and uh, the uh, interview that uh, President Putin gave uh, to uh, BUILD. Uh, I, I'm already, say, I'm running close on time. He had some interesting things to say about whether Russia was a superpower or not. He said, "No, we're not," but I, I, I won't uh, uh, get into that. Um, but uh, uh, to uh, s- summarize these uh, very uh, carefully worded statements from the Roth and uh, uh, the uh, Putin comments, which were. Uh, emerged in a very substantive exchange between these very well-informed German editors and Putin in a a very uh, vigorous back and forth. There are three uh, different processes that Russia wants to uh, be uh, engaged in. One they're calling uh, the Vienna uh, Process, which has involved uh, the United States, uh, other countries trying to find a, uh, a solution to this Syrian problem by uh, engaging different elements in uh, Syria. The most dramatic demonstration of the Russian commitment to to that process was the fact that on December 18th, in the Security Council, the Russians actually supported an American proposal to come up with some kind of negotiated solution uh, there. Uh, There's another process that the Russians are working very hard on, the Minsk process to try to resolve these conflicts in Ukraine, mainly the Donetsk, Luhansk uh, areas. I think they're kind of keeping Crimea a a little bit uh, out of the Minsk process. But the Russians have really upgraded that. Uh, A deputy uh, minister, uh, uh, Boris Gryzlov, a member of the Security Council, has been conducting uh, meetings with all interested parties in Western Europe, Ukraine, and, and so forth. And there's another process which I'm trying to begin, and I, I'm lacking a, a name for it, so a uh, city to associate it with. So I'm going to call it the Moscow-Washington uh, process, and that is to uh, come up with a, uh, a joint approach this question of Al Qaeda uh, and the Islamic State. Uh, Levrov and uh, Putin, whom I could quote, but I'm running out of time here. Very specific that they want to. Uh, 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 work on that issue this is something that has a history uh, the, the, uh, the Russian government the Russian Federation actively assisted the United States and NATO uh, in their actions in Afghanistan uh, over the period from 1903 really up to the um, uh, uh, withdrawal um, uh, uh, and um, I think they're, they're serious about uh, that Um, uh, I'll just say, what what should we take as a a sign of of Russian good faith in regard to all three of these things uh, and the Middle East in particular? Uh, I suggest that um, uh, the agreement signed with Iran last uh, July, the joint program of cooperative action uh, to halt. The movement of Iran toward the development of nuclear weapons uh, has uh, been uh, a a success. It's just passed its first test. Russia was absolutely critical in reaching that agreement. Russia was absolutely critical in implementing it. The several hundred tons of highly enriched uh, uranium uh, that are are, are crucial to making that agreement work have been shipped. Uh, to uh, uh, Russia. Um, That agreement, if that agreement hadn't been signed, if you think the Middle East is a mess now, uh, my God, what what with Israeli attacks on uh, Iran, the the Saudis uh, starting their own nuclear program. um, um, This is very significant and the significance of that agreement is not confined to the Middle East. It has kept the nuclear non-proliferation treaty uh, uh, on its feet, uh, despite the problems in uh, Korea and so forth. Uh, that uh, is uh, a major achievement. But that goes that has a, a, a history that goes back uh, most immediately to the 2010 renewal of the START treaty, which in turn was built on all sorts of um, uh, other things. Um, the, uh, the major problem that... Uh, both of these spokesmen uh, for the Russian state uh, offered has, has, has been something that I'll have to be extremely brief about and and uh, and leave it that uh, they uh, argue that the process of NATO enlargement has created an intolerable situation uh, NATO and European Union enlargement an intolerable situation for them in a zone that used to be occupied. Uh, by the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And that's why they acted in Ukraine to bring that process to a a halt. It involves other areas, these so-called frozen conflicts uh, in uh, the Caucasus, in Moldova. Uh, 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 At the same time, uh, the Russian state wants good economic relations with Western Europe which has been buying most of its energy and so forth. They, they would like to put an end to the problems created by that enlargement. They'd like to resume their uh, productive economic relations with uh, Western Europe, but they have a capacity uh to keep these frozen conflicts uh, going, uh, something like this could happen in the Middle East, they also have a capability a capacity to end those conflicts, including the ones in the Middle East. Um, so I think they are genuinely sincere uh, in trying to move towards a resolution of the Vienna process, of the Minsk process, of the Moscow-Washington process, that's my phrase. Uh, they haven't invented a phrase yet uh, uh, for that, uh, but their leverage uh, for moving in that direction is the is the fact that they can make all of those things much worse uh, if they uh, they choose to do so. So I'll leave it there. Thanks.
0: Thank you. I guess to begin, I would say that we are in a strategic stalemate in Syria. There's no one side that is capable of really achieving a military victory or of forcing the issue. This has been a stalemate for several years, but kind of bottom line first, the increase in Saudi-Iranian tension over the last couple of weeks has made it even less likely that we'll see a resolution of any sort in Geneva, which perhaps throws into relief the hope of any side, including Russia, that increasing intervention in Syria would lead to a kind of tipping of the balance of any sort. And I think we're much more likely to see a continuation of this. Me, I what my pen back so I can take notes on. You. <laughs> a continuation of this kind of balance of force where. There is an overlapping set of conflicts, with neither group, neither of any number of groups, really capable of achieving any form of decisive success. So, what we are likely to see, I think, in 2016, beyond in the run-up and beyond the negotiations in Geneva, are all sides, both locally in Syria, but also all external groups with an interest in Syria leveraging for an eventual settlement that is far from perfect, that is the best kind of short-term. Of course, a post-conflict transition down the line at some point in some shape or form. A key difference of Russia from the U.S. perhaps is that Russia has long-standing networks in Syria, as we've spoken about, the base in Tartus, the long-standing military-to-military ties. The fact that Russia's undertaken so many airstrikes since September, when you consider that against the much more limited use of airstrikes by the US, by France, or by the United (coughs) Kingdom. In the UK, we voted in December to launch airstrikes after an anguished campaign on both sides on whether or not to do so. But in the last six weeks since the vote, the number of British airstrikes has been six. So six airstrikes in six weeks compared to the Russian volume of airstrikes we've seen. So the Russians have a long-standing network and boots on the ground in Syria, which really, I think, gives them a greater degree of leverage, at least in part, than, say, some of the other external um, players in the Syrian conflict. To what extent, I mean, short-term Russian objectives are very much to preserve Assad in power, at least in the short term and to weaken his opponents so that in any settlement or negotiation there are a a rump state perhaps that is strong enough to survive with Russian influence intact, as we've spoken about, Russian influence in the Mediterranean capable of sustaining an expeditionary force in the future. To some extent, there's overlap with U.S. objectives in the sense that both the U.S. and Russia are highly vulnerable to Islamist militancy especially with the rise of the Islamic State. Russia, more than most, has a major problem with recruitment to IS of uh, jihadi, um, of jihadis of Russian origin, and also from Central Asia, from Chechnya. The so-called Chechen group within IS is extremely strong. Chechens, or at least people from Central Asia, whom the Syrians called Shishani, as in Chechens, were among the very first external groups to flock to the insurgency in twenty twelve as it began to radicalize and to develop into what became Islamic State and Al Nusra to some extent before Al-Nusra and Islamic State split in twenty thirteen. So the Russians also have an incentive in trying to stem the flow of Islamist militancy and jihadi networking and recruitment, which can hit them hard in Central Asia and among Russian communities of Muslim origin. There was a very interesting uh, snippet of news in November when the security forces in Kuwait broke up an Islamic State cell bringing together the two um, theaters of Russia, of the Ukraine and Syria. They broke up an Islamic State cell that was actually caught purchasing weaponry on the Ukrainian black market, transferring it through Turkey to the Islamic State in Syria. So, you see there the potential for bringing together some of these theaters in a highly destabilizing way. So, in the short term, the Russians are very much trying to, I think, preserve the Assad regime. Is there daylight between Russia and Iran? In the longer term, could we see splits beginning to develop in this? kind of pro-Assad kind of group. Well, not so much in the short term, but in the longer term, we may see that. Russia has close ties with the Syrian military, long connections going back decades to the Cold War period with the Soviet Union. Iran, however, and increasingly over the last three or four years as the opposition in Syria has gained traction and Iran's own involvement in Syria has deepened, Iran increasingly has focused on militias and on non-state actors such as Hezbollah, and now over the last year in Yemen, the Houthi militants there as well, as much working against or in parallel to formal military structures and regimes. And we've seen in Iraq as well this dynamic at play over the last 12 years. So we may see eventually in the longer term a tension increasing between Russian working through formal state-to-state, military-to-military structures and Iran trying to double down on its support for non-state actors in countries where it's trying to leverage its soft power. The absence of any clear-cut resolution in Syria means it's likely to be a very muddled transition. Of course, we don't know yet a transition to what. And so should the Russians ever deem Assad to be expendable, it seems to me they're more likely to do so than Iran. So if the Russians ever deem their interest to be better preserved with easing Assad out of power and putting another strong man perhaps into a position of power in Syria, that could also lead to a split with Iran, which I think would be much more likely to try to preserve Assad and his immediate kind of coterie at all costs. Who to come next and how to maximize any leverage over that could be something we could see over the next year to 18 months if the current stalemate continues. I think it was interesting when Assad was summoned to Moscow in the autumn In many, many people in the Middle East at least took it as kind of Putin sort of summoning Assad to tell him this is the price you'll pay for Russia getting involved in the way that we are. Clearly we don't know the particulars of those conversations. Moving to the Gulf states which also have been incredibly active, involved and increasingly (coughs) interested participants in Syria. The Gulf states could also try to widen the gaps between Russia and Iran, especially in light of the tension we've seen over the last two weeks, which really is the combination of years of rising tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which has now, I think, exploded into the open in very dangerous and destabilizing new ways. Kind of detaching Russia from Iran would be a huge coup, a huge prize, for the Gulf states should they be able to do so, or at least to try and widen the gaps between the two. And as we've heard from from Bradley, the plunging oil prices created huge problems, not just for Russia, also for the Gulf states, but it has potentially given the Gulf states a, an angle to try to dangle the threat of investment into the Russian economy as a perhaps a tool to try to win Russian support for their positions. We've seen, especially over the last year, a, an investment drive spearheaded by Vladimir Putin to get Gulf states to commit to investing billions of dollars into the Russian direct investment fund. The Saudis committed to investing $10 billion. Uh, the Emiratis the same. I think Kuwait invested $5 billion. Bahrain and the UAE have also done so as well. So, the sharp escalation in the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Iran could be the beginning of a much more concerted campaign from the Gulf to offer financial incentives and inducements to Russia to try to open up a gap between Russia and Iran. And if in this new age of economic crisis and austerity, it may well be that Russia decides that (coughs) maintaining a close relationship commercially with the Gulf states is worth more, we may see. In terms of the Gulf itself, it's interesting because there's no monolithic Gulf position on Syria. We have seen the Saudis, the Qataris, and the Turks working much more closely with this more expansive view of the opposition, working with groups indirectly such as Jabhat al Nusra and Akhra al Shams, and the Saudis in particular trying to unify the Islamist opposition. There have been a series of meetings in Riyadh over the past three weeks where the Saudis are trying to unify the opposition ahead of the negotiations in Geneva. So there'll be one opposition standpoint. Russia, together with the UAE and Egypt, views the um, working with these groups with deep suspicion. So they have a much more restrictive view on what constitutes a moderate, or kind of at least an opposition that you can work with. And they view the potential for working with groups like Jabhat al nusra and al Shams with deep suspicion. So interestingly, the UAE and Russia are very close on this regard we've had a series of meetings between emirati leaders and putin and his in kind of immediate team over the past two or three months working i think to try to ensure that the saudi qatari turkish kind of vision of the islamist opposition doesn't become uh, the kind of a uh, unifying view So we could see a quid pro quo eventually, where the Russians work more closely with the GCC, the Gulf states, for greater investment. Interestingly, there was a meeting in Sochi in October between Vladimir Putin and the deputy crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the power broker in Saudi Arabia, and the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, who is also the power broker within the UAE. And at that meeting, Uh, Putin was alleged to have actually told um, the Saudis and Emiratis that he would work with them to contain Iranian influence in Syria if they supported Russian policy in Syria. So we could begin to see that contour take shape if some of these um, trajectories play out over the next few months, especially in light of the continuing plunge in oil prices. the Emir of Qatar was in Russia yesterday and today. His first visit as Emir of Qatar. So he's paying a state visit. He met with Putin yesterday. They discussed a wide range of Middle East issues, not least the outlines of a potential Syrian uh, um, policy, or at least a Syrian resolution. It's most likely, I suspect, that Tamim was also the Emir of Qatar was also conveying the position of the Saudis, but especially also of Turkey. We've seen also a clear escalation of Russian-Turkish relations over the past few months as well. So it could be that the Qataris are trying to be this bridge between Russia and Turkey and Saudi Arabia, at least to try to come to a consensus on at least what the coherent outlines of a settlement may be. Finally, what implications are there for the U.S.? Well, at this meeting in Geneva, there'll be potentially the outlines of a settlement, made much more complicated by the fact that the Saudis and the Iranians are much more likely now to double down on their respective support groups within Syria. and much less likely to (coughs) agree on anything in light of the escalation in bilateral tension over the past um, couple of weeks. Because of that, negotiations are likely to fail, at least fail to come up with a coherent and consensual approach to moving forward. Also, the Iran negotiations and the implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was announced on Saturday, have had the unfortunate side effect of sharply escalating the Gulf States' um, distrust of the current administration here in the U.S. The Gulf States view the U.S. position, at least the Obama Administration's position on Iran, with absolute incomprehension. They cannot understand why the U.S. would jettison, in their view, their closest political and security allies in the Middle East, except for Israel, which to some extent shares that opinion, for a regime that could go either way in terms of implementing or not the agreement. This may or may not be fair, but it's very much the view that's kind of very strong within the Gulf. In fact, just today, the Dubai chief of security stated that Obama is of Shia Muslim origin and was elected for the sole purpose of bringing Iran and the U.S. together. Now, this is the chief of security, and his view carries real weight. It reflects, I think, a lot of people's perspectives in the Gulf. So, distrust among the Gulf states of U.S. action is very high, likely to continue this level until a year from today or a year from tomorrow when the next president takes office. And in that period, we may see the beginnings of a dangerous period where the Gulf states increasingly take unilateral action to defend, as they see it, their own regional interests in Syria, in Yemen, and elsewhere, with, of course, the Yemen war being an example of that. The the Gulf states really acting without the U.S., against U.S. interests in many ways, because they feel that they don't have the U.S. back anymore, and so kind of lashing out under pressure, especially as the oil price continues to drop. So I think the next year we'll see a cons combination of factors coming together, which will make it a very dangerous one, much less likely, I think, to see any resolution in Syria. And so all the groups that have intervened will, I think, have to rethink any notion that intervening is any more likely to bring about a resolution than it was before. So...
1: Okay, now we have some time for questions. Uh, Val will be walking around with a microphone so please wait for her to get to you. Questions,
0: comments, befuddlement, <laughs>
3: come here. <laughs>
1: this falls under the category of befuddlement. Um, the, the Obama administration says there's approximately 60 coalition partners, that be around something like that, that are allied to fight ISIS. Uh, of those sixty or so coalition partners, who's really doing anything? Can you
0: tell me, Christian? Anybody else? I mean, I think the majority of the airstrikes, at least on the U.S.-led campaign, are being done by the U.S. and by France. UK has hardly done anything. The Gulf states began in a very high-profile way, but have since redirected almost all of their energy towards Yemen. So we. We haven't seen any real action on the anti-ISIL front since maybe the spring. And that's a big flashpoint with the Obama administration. They're trying to get the Gulf states back on board because they think they're doing stirring up more trouble in Yemen than it's worth and taking their eye off the main target in Syria and Iraq. The Gulf states' view at the beginning was very much we're going to take part for the PR benefits of doing so to show that we're on the right side because there was so much Um, talk about some of their role perhaps in (laughs) supporting or at least financing or being sympathetic to ISIL growth. And so we saw very high profile use of a a very photogenic female pilot in the UAE. We saw the son of the King of Saudi Arabia taking part. But that's more or less fallen away. And the Obama administration is trying to get especially the Arab coalition partners to actually refocus back. On to Syria because the Yemen campaign, which perhaps was launched in a hasty spirit of we're going to have a quick victory and get out, has dragged on and deepened their involvement just at the moment in time when they were the kind of the anti ISIL campaign was beginning to develop momentum. So the notion of trying to avoid any notion of a, a new Western military adventure in the Middle East by having Middle Eastern actors involved has kind of fallen away. Oh
3: on that um, uh, if there's one group that uh, is unanimous uh, in its uh, opposition both to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, it is the uh, group of states that are in the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization, Russia, China, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and uh, um, Tajikistan, but not uh, Turkestan. Um, The Chinese uh, say there are three evils out there. Extremism, um, uh, uh, separatism, separatism and terrorism. And And, um, uh, uh, all of those states are um, opposed to those things in regard to al-Qaeda and uh, uh, the Islamic State, and as Christian pointed out, the situation in the caucus with the Chechnya and Dagestan is really complicated. Fifteen uh, percent of the population of the Russian Federation uh, could be categorized as Turkic speakers or Muslims or usually both. Uh, that's the situation for the... Uh, well, the Central Asian members of the uh, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization; uh, uh, those those regimes are are really uh, serious about fighting uh, whatever you want to call it: uh, uh, Islamic State, Al Qaeda, fundamentalism, terrorism, and so forth.
0: Well, interestingly, the the scale of recruitment of Chechens to fight in Syria was so great. That the Islamist militant groups in Chechnya were actually concerned that most of their fighters were actually moving to Syria. So they tried to staunch the flow by issuing a fatwa that you actually have to fight against the Russian enemy here and not go to Syria because it was getting so great. They were losing <laughs> fighters. Incidentally, there were some allegations
1: that the Russian security services were actually assisting uh, Islamic militants in the North Caucasus to leave the country and join the fight in Syria. Uh, it's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but then again, um, the, the really large numbers of people from the North Caucasus who ended up in Syria, plus the fact that Russia is very good at policing its borders, and a lot of these people um, would have trouble getting um, uh, passports or exit visas to leave Russia, gives this theory some credence. It's not entirely crazy that Russia would want some of these people who are otherwise going to be fighting against Moscow to leave and go fight in Syria. George?
3: Um, to, with respect to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, there's a lot of talk about now about Iran being eligible to get in that the sanctions have all been lifted. And uh, the, the pundits have been, in the last few days,
0: making up all kinds of stories. You can't tell whether it's coming from the propaganda machine in Moscow or not, suggesting that um, uh, a, a new relationship between Iran and Russia will be evolving. but. Not necessarily until the uh, Shanghai Cooperation is actually accepting Iran as a member. Does anybody have any comments on that or how that might change the the situation in Syria there as far as uh, who will be supporting them? It's so complicated. It's hard to really address the question at it, but it seems significant, especially since Iran's getting all the uh, economic boost that maybe Putin won't even have.
2: Right. Uh, I think we can look at it from just beginning with the principle of if we're going to look at the SCO, we look at the fact that the SCO is entirely a Chinese-run organization. Um, Russia is a member, Russia Russia is, is, is an observer, et cetera. The Central Asian states are basically there, um, but this is run by China. Um, China is strongly opposed to Islamic separatism, it very much frames the ethnic conflict in Xinjiang as an Islamic separatist uh, issue, even though by and large it's not. Um, There are Islamic separatists in Xinjiang, but the bulk of what's going on isn't related to that issue. Um, My view is that the SCO will not uh, become heavily active in this, and China will not, because it's not in China's strategic interest to do so. Um, China's very much focused on the South China Sea, it's very much focused on the US-Asia pivot, Um, and also China's, over the last ten years, has played a simply brilliant foreign policy game very much mirroring what the U.S. did in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, essentially uh, what we called when we described U.S. foreign policy in the era is jackal diplomacy, um, of where the Americans basically went behind the British and let the British do all the work uh, and then kind of pick up the scraps. Um, China's Middle East policy has very much been the same in terms of looking at what China's done in Afghanistan, uh, look at what China's done in other regions, um, and China's Brilliant at it, um, so I don't see them as having any interest or any any real reason to go into it. As if it's as the question of whether or not Iran would actually join, would, would go in, it's been an observer. Um, but almost everybody in the region has been an observer. I mean, Turkey's an observer, India's an observer. Um, so it's it's possible, um, but at present, I, I wouldn't see it as being uh, anything that China is getting uh, heavily excited about uh, in light of its other its other concerns.
1: You mentioned that Putin might be out in 2018. If
2: that's the case, w- would that change things a lot? Uh, If he go, I I don't think he's going to. I mean, I think he's going to be around for quite a while. Um, We obviously have to look at at realities in terms of the economy. But um, in terms of anybody being able to sort of predict what goes on with the next election, uh, I don't think uh, it's hard enough knowing what's going on next week. Um, But if it it did go, I mean, I've always been a believer of looking at the domestic Russian political scene, um, and you have many commentators who observe it and say, oh, once Putin goes, um, then we'll have this wonderful, happy land of sweetness and liberty and democracy, um, and I would say, look at everybody else. Um, there's it's, there's a, lot of pe- a lot of people who are scarier. There's a lot of people who are more uh, overtly fascist. Um, I think that if, if Putin did go, we'd have to see how it shook out, but I wouldn't be surprised if Putin did go. We'd see an even more uh, extremely nationalist regime.
0: So I wonder if Chris and Brad can talk to each other a little bit because uh, I mean Chris uh, was making this point that Russia, in some ways, is genuinely interested in uh, in playing uh, perhaps a positive role, being a part of the conversations uh, around a number of issues. Um, whereas there is this other argument that the economic situation, especially, is so bad that these foreign entanglements has become a um, a very important part of Putin's strategy for survival. So it was Crimea, Syria, and then as things go worse, you can see other places, too. It may not necessarily fit into a global strategy, but domestically, maybe it makes sense. So I was wondering if, how do you see the two of you, these two uh, arguments?
3: Between? Well, um To me, the the, um, um, problem of the enlargement of the European Union and NATO has uh, put uh, every leader uh, of Russia, uh, actually there have been only two, but uh, Yeltsin and and Putin, but uh, the the political class there uh, has uh, faced... um, Uh, uh, a very difficult situation. It's it's a difficult situation for us. I'm going to be very contradictory. I'm I'm in favor of... uh, I've been in favor of the enlargement of NATO and uh, the European Union uh, as it evolved uh, in response to uh, events in Eastern Europe, principally the breakup of Yugoslavia, uh, the breakup of Czechoslovakia in 1993, about the same time Yugoslavia uh, uh, broke up, and the, the, the question of, of what kind of regimes would um, uh, emerge there. Would they be re- regimes like the ones that Milosevic uh, was building in Serbia? Uh, regimes uh, like the one that Viktor Urban may be building in Hungary or perhaps even uh, what the Law and Justice Party in Poland is now uh, looking at. I think the enlargement of NATO and the European Union put those states uh, on a track toward the development of a, uh, uh, democratic market economies uh, anchored in the frameworks of the European Union and NATO that this was a good thing for the internal development of of those countries. Um, But when um, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania uh, joined both of those uh, organizations, uh, uh, which was, what, 2003, 2004, uh, this created the possibility that other parts of the former Soviet Union, Uh, might join those organizations. And that was added to a a policy of the Bush administration at the time that I think was uh, increasingly anti-Russian. And um, it um, uh, it produced a a situation in which, um, uh, to me, the virtues of enlargement Uh, were no longer virtues, that enlargement of both institutions was never enlargement for the sake of enlargement, it was enlargement for uh, assisting democratic development in these states. But when we come to issues in Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, which are very complicated, the issue of enlargement I think destabilizes uh, domestic politics in all of those uh, places, and it's it's really not in the uh, interest of either NATO or the European Union to engage in that kind of, of 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 destabilization. They certainly want should support democratization, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean membership. Uh, but on the Russian side, this is invading a space where they want to. Uh, restore economic and other ties uh, among different parts of the soviet union i don't see the russians trying to restore a soviet empire um, uh, but that they need to restore a a zone of economic cooperation which has very deep uh, uh, roots so uh, on this question of what's going uh, uh, on here i i see the, the the russian position in ukraine and georgia
2: Moldova is fundamentally reactive. It isn't aggressive. I'll leave it there. Um, i'm I, I agree in that sense that I mean, in, in, that Russia was boxed in in terms of it having to do something with regard to uh, Ukraine, et cetera, and then NATO enlargement, the possibility of EU enlargement towards towards Ukraine. Um, I'm deeply I'm deeply pessimistic about about any idea of Russian cooperation with the West. Um I think that we would only see it happening under two circumstances. circumstance. One is if the Russian economy, required it to such an extent that um, it would be a, a make or break question for the regime. And I think that anything that you do have coming right now is essentially a backdoor safety valve um, for if things do get too bad. And I mean, that's what Belarus has done for years. I mean, to some degree you can say Putin's learning from Lukashenko on this. Um, not much learned from, but <laughs> once in a while. Um, the second would be um, a situation where you have a some form of cooperation that um, could be spun or framed to the domestic audience as a Russian victory. Um, or at least as as this was only achieved because of what what our glorious glorious leader has done uh, in terms of basically uh, altering the the situation. Um, Outside of those two areas, I I, I don't think there's there's much right now. I'm I'm not optimistic.
1: Let me just add to that. I think I'm a little bit less pessimistic than than Brad is about this uh, because Russian... uh, rhetoric about who its friends and who its enemies are can change fairly rapidly and even though people get very worked up at a given time, uh, people also have short memories and can easily replace an old fixation with a a new one. For example, um, after the Russian jet was shot down over Turkey, suddenly, overnight, uh, Turkey took the lion's share of negative coverage in the Russian media uh, in a way that, lessened um, the malevolence of, of the previous bit noir, which which was the West, um, anchored by the US. And as long as uh, a common enemy can be identified that's greater than uh, other rivals, for example, radical Islam or jihadism, right, which unifies a variety of disparate actors in Eurasia along with the US, countries can come to Temporary um, and conditional coalitions working on you know at, at, for common purposes, while that threat, constructed though it is, persists. Uh, and I think uh, the U.S. working with with Russia on the Iranian deal, where interests overlapped, shows that this is possible. And to the extent that the Sunni Shia or Saudi Iranian uh, divide deepens even further, well then. Um, you know, uh, Russia may appear much more benign to the U.S., and uh, and the U.S. may appear more benign to Russia.
2: No, I, I like the framing, particularly in the context of the the Russia's the security strategy. It relates to the end of December, where it says. Uh, it talks about spirituality quite often I mean in a security strategy you don't expect that um, and of course with Russia opposed um, the one side being okay we have on the one side extremism on the one side we have this and this this western spiritual sort of use the Chinese term spiritual pollution and so I like the idea of basically yeah we c- that if we're gonna okay we're with the uh, we're with the West right now against radical Islam and maybe we just put that to one side for right now so yeah
1: gives one a little bit of cost- <laughs> Uh that gives if you-
3: Get that deception in the room. Um, I got a question actually. Well, two questions, if you don't mind. Question ones. There's mixed reports of uh, Russia's uh, supporting, uh, giving air support to uh, various groups that claim to be uh, FSA, the Syrian army. Uh, would you guys know of that? And the second question is what is Russia's economic interest post stabilization in Syria? Because there's also reports that Assad promised many lucrative contracts to Russia to build uh, after Syria has stabilized. Get, I don't know when that will happen, but those two questions. Are just curious to hear opinion any comments. Well, um, Russia has been uh, uh, eager to sell Iran and other uh, Middle Eastern countries' uh, uh, weapons, uh, air defense systems uh and uh, the Russian defense industry um, is is dependent on on those kinds of, uh, of sales um and uh, sometimes that comes into that interest of aborone export comes into uh, conflict with the foreign ministry um yeah, they have they have different uh, uh, interests uh, there so i i'm am i It may be that Russian policy is a bit conflicted um, uh, on that. Uh, The the Russians want to build nuclear power plants all across the Middle East. Uh, They have a contract with Turkey to build four, but they're talking to the. I'm not sure whether the contract's been signed with Jordan. They're building one at Boucher in uh, Iran. They're talking about others. They've been talking about uh, that with some of the Gulf states. They were. Uh, bitters, but they didn't win on the uh, United Arab Emirates uh, project for four nuclear reactors. The Koreans, mm-hmm. South Koreans, won uh, uh, that one. Um, but I'll just say that, that um, uh, one of the minor things about the Korean uh, um, project in the United Arab Emirates is that they they are uh, plan to offer a security component to defend mm-hmm. those plants. Uh, against possible attacks of one sort or or another. Those things kind of uh, uh, go together. Um, So I'll leave it there.
1: Anything about uh, Russian
0: support for the Free Syrian Army? I mean, I've not heard anything about it. I mean, it may well be that groups are so opaque and fluid and sort of crossing lines that they have done airstrikes in areas where the FSA is operating that make it seem as if They've been the beneficiary, but I've not come across anything. I mean, a lot of the information is so difficult to verify that, and the groups are so numerous on the ground, so it's it's often very hard to to kind of pinpoint with any degree <coughs> of certainty what's actually happened. Oh, cool. uh, clearly the low price of oil is a, a
2: stressor in the situation.
0: Uh, do any of the players have control of that price of oil appetite to use that control or ability to use that control? Can mm-hmm. you Oh, go ahead. I mean, yes, you're right. And, I mean, you read will talk about Russia, but the Gulf states are also taking austerity measures very, very quickly. Nothing in the way of the 10% across the board cut, but we've seen flagship initiatives being cut. We've seen downsizing across the board. Um, Qatar announcing last week they were closing Al Jazeera. America was a big thing because Al Jazeera is one of the kind of crown jewels of the the kind of Qatari kind of um, stable. So we have seen the oil price really impacting. And of course, any continuation of that downward trend, which I think people are now predicting could go down to $10 to $15, will have huge problems. Saudi Arabia this year is running a budget deficit, or last year. Run a budget deficit over 100 billion dollars. Now, if they have reserves of 670 billion, that's six years' reserves. You were saying Russia had two, so I mean, you can blow through those reserves incredibly quickly, and the difficulty will be trying to diversify the sources of revenue, especially in the Gulf, where there's such a kind of lack of any form of extraction through taxation and other ways of increasing those kind of streams. So that could well lead to kind of internal unrest, and of course. At times of internal unrest, you often see regimes lashing out. And I think we've seen that with Yemen. We could see that more so in Syria now as well. We've seen the use of Iran as kind of this trying to externalize the root causes of any discontent by blaming it on this kind of supposed internal meddling by an external actor. So I think this could be a real problem. Could they, I mean, can they come together to agree on a price of oil? Difficult to say. I mean, OPEC is completely split. You have, obviously, the Saudi-Iranian dispute even further, kind of splitting OPEC between the two wings. You have the Saudis learning the lessons from the 1980s when they cut production from 10 million barrels a day to 2.5 million, and the price still collapsed, which meant they lost not just revenue but market share. So the Saudis now are really defending market share at all cost. People say, yes, the Saudis are doing this kind of game to try to reduce the price so that Russia and Iran geopolitically can lose out most. But the Saudis themselves now admit that the price collapse has been much worse than even they anticipated. So one gets a sense that no one group is in control and can kind of come to any form of consensus, which is a huge dilemma for these oil states as we go forward.
2: Well, I agree with Christian. I just the only thing I'd expand is is, is exactly the point of we saw the, the discussion of okay, Saudi Arabia is attempting to do X and deal with the u s. fracking industry and so on and so forth. Um, and I agree they, they I don't think that they expected it. Um, and at this stage we look at, I mean, global growth. We look at slowdown growth in China. We look at everywhere. I mean looking at looking at the European growth numbers is is almost rather terrifying. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think anybody can any anybody can control at this point.
1: If I'm not mistaken, though, I think if uh, if Congress were to ban fracking in America, that might stodge the slide of the price of oil at least temporarily. And the senators from Alaska and Texas, the Ronti economies of America, love
3: health, you know. I can't resist <laughs> adding something along the the line, and and that is. Um, about 30 years ago, an economist named Julian Simon uh, addressed this issue of peak oil. One movie ran out of oil, and he said that the the shortage uh, we were facing was one of uh, engineering and, uh, and, and technology. Uh, nobody believed him uh, at uh, uh, the time. Uh, but uh, when I read all of these things, uh, trying to explain these volatile shifts in uh, oil prices over uh, the last 30 or or, or 40 years, uh, the argument that uh, persuades me is, is the one uh, about the uh, inter- constant technological innovation, which is what Exxon Mobil is in the business of of doing and and uh, all sorts of re- related things. Uh, uh, industries. Um, I'll just sum this up with something that I honestly can't believe, but that you, you can look it up and, and see it, that with these new technologies that are available, the, the, the number one state in the world in terms of proven reserves right now is Venezuela. Who, who knew that? <laughs> Venezuela. I thought they were running out of oil. No
1: we are talking about one
2: or two more questions over there. Since I'm assuming Germany is considered the West, so how does um, Russia
1: uh, react to uh, Germany taking in? Is it three hundred thousand? I don't know how many refugees. Or, um, refugees? It's a million, million. million. One million. I thought it was one million, and I think Canada was three um, hundred. I'm not sure what. Yeah, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but I'm wondering how that affects. Their relationship that they're giving refuge to these women and children, and you know other uh, vulnerable men um, into their borders. How does that affect
0: their relationship?
2: Well, in terms of the the, so we can look at the sort of in the dynamics of of the Russian-German relationship, and I mean it's if you're going to look at I mean who historically has responsibility in Europe for I mean last fifteen years, who's the most important bilateral relationship? It's the relationship with Germany, um, and it's it's had its ups and downs um, significantly, and uh, m- more downs than ups, I think, since since uh, uh, Gerhard Schröder left office, um, but. I don't think it's going to have, I don't think it'll have a, a, a significant, a significant impact uh, in terms of, in, in terms of that. I think uh, Russia will smile and nod at it um, and continue its support for UNHCR, at least in, in, in name, uh, in, in the UN. Um, but I don't think it'll have any, any, any real significant change uh, the only way that it could possibly happen would be if you had some sort of uh, that the dynamics of that refugee population as we started seeing polling in Germany results in some major change in the domestic politics of Germany where Merkel's coalition has some problems, uh, she already does have issues, and that that could result in some shift in German policy towards Syria but uh, for now I don't, I don't, that's, I think that's multiple uh, steps down the road.
1: I'll just add though, um, looking, you know, a few years down the road I think uh, the massive influx of refugees, Muslim refugees, into Europe in some ways might affect relations between Russia and Europe. In that the Russian claim that civilization is under threat, Mm. and in particular, the only thing that unites Russia with the West is this common European civilizational bond against radical Islam. Uh, might be something that actually moves the parties together again because there's this common enemy. And every time uh, there's this nationalist backlash within Europe, every time there's another terrorist attack, I think Putin says, "You know, I told you so," and has a little bit of Schadenfreude when he sees uh, Europe experiencing what Russia has experienced over um, the last couple of decades. Partly, of course, through Russia's own fault, um, but. The broader dynamic about the way Russia and the West view the Middle East and view the Muslim world might also shape these broader um, great power alliances.
2: This is this is one that we haven't touched on as much tonight. Is the question of uh, Chris has talked about uh, the EU expansion um, and the question of Putin's relationship. And there's some fascinating work coming out right now on Putin's relationship with far right political parties in Europe. Um, the one that's most well known, of course, is the relationship between the Kremlin and funding of uh, uh, Marine Le Pen's party, the Front National. Um, we also look at the relationship between uh, the Russian government and the ruling party uh, Fidesz in Hungary and and the Jobbik party, um, and the list just is going on on and on and on, um, and that's that's uh, that goes right to Scott's point in terms of the, this sort of oh well uh, as Viktor Orbán, the Prime Minister of Hungary, said we're we're protecting Western, we're protecting Christian civilization, and and Putin's of course doesn't say Western he phrases it as Orthodox civilization or Eurasians, or something else, um, but that but that is uh, in terms of a, it seems to be a growing threat to the EU very much and it is something where Russia is although we don't know all the nuances is 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 very active. It's
0: up
1: for about one more question. Or
0: two quick ones. Start, start. <laughs> two questions about Russia. One's economic. I somewhere where Putin has to balance two or three different
3: forces. One is the military. One is the KGB thieves and oligarchs who stole everything. And the third, I think, is just the general populace. But balancing those three to stay in power. Uh, but the broader question is, how long? I mean, Russia is bigger way about 30 years to translate itself from a resource-dependent economy to a knowledge-based economy, and maybe too late for them to reverse that and catch up with, pick a country, Western Europe, U.S., et cetera. So how long can they really survive on 65% oil revenue and vodka mm-hmm. in the absence of a knowledge-based economy like the rest of the Western civilization?
1: Let's take that last question now, and then we'll just address everything together. Uh, just on the subject that was just touched on um, regarding the refugee crisis uh, in the European Union, could you just share some thoughts on how the indiscriminate bombing in Syria might be actually fueling it, thereby pushing more and more people into the EU, stressing it? It was just announced today that Donald Tusk has basically given the EU two months to solve the crisis before the Schengen uh, uh, the Schengen system collapses and they introduce passport controls again. So maybe just some thoughts on that. Okay, However, once, uh, please take a very uh, brief last word. Uh,
3: I think your question about the modernization of Russia is ex- extremely important. Uh, all of the uh, when, um, most people in the Russian uh, government and Duma Federation Council uh, are, are fully aware of that problem. The hard thing to remember is that uh, Russia was in terrible economic shape from about 1988 uh, to, say, 2002, 2003. It wasn't then uh, that oil prices got above $20 uh, a barrel. So uh, this 30-year period, uh, you could name that, but it's it's only really been the last uh, 10 or 12 years that uh, that the revenues uh, have have been there. And the first thing to do was to pay the pensions, pay the back wages, and so forth. um, uh, this, this problem is, is a, is, is, is a terrible one, right?
2: It, uh, and it, 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 uh, I'll just leave it there. Um, I'd say that it's, it was moving much better than uh, up until 2007. I mean, we saw the growth of small and medium-sized enterprises. We saw the attempt to move away, at least to some degree, from the oil and gas economy and to diversify. And Russia knows this. They, they've been fully aware of the need to diversify for some time. Um, at the same time, Russia's now in WTO, and Russia's going to be experiencing a lot of chaos from that, not having a huge amount of experience from it. Um, in the short to medium term, even if things do get bad, one of the most fascinating things about the Russian economy, well, there's two. Is The first is it has a homegrown um, uh, safety net in the sense of um Notches, private farming. Um, Russia actually has um, subsistence agriculture is a wonderful way to resolve this problem, and we've seen it in the past in '98. We're going to see it again. Um, the second, basically, is cutting hours instead of cutting employment. Um, so we're seeing. So in the short term, there are some there's some ways to. to Deal with this. In the long term, it is a it's 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 a significant problem um, of basically how do you basically get those things forward? And an outcome of this is going to be as we see the current debates in the Ministry of Finance of do we privatize Sparebank? Do we privatize other state banks? Do we sell off Russian government's ownership of parts of Rosneft? And this is going to be one of the sort of key critical junctures for determining perhaps in light of just short-term economic questions, but the future direction of the Russian economy.
0: Well, I think in terms of the European Union. The crisis over the next year will, I think, determine whether the European Union survives in its current shape. Obviously, the Schengen Agreement is under intense strain. And what we've seen over the last year or six months has been that countries have addressed this unilaterally, often in a very short-term ad hoc basis. Angela Merkel kind of throwing open the doors, for example, of Germany without really consulting any of her partners. And, of course, the Poles and others reacting against that. So I think the need for a European (coughs) approach is stronger now than ever before. The problem is that we're seeing this divergence among member states in how to approach that. That kind of dichotomy will become even harder, I think, to sustain, particularly if we see another wave of refugees entering over the spring and summer once the weather warms up and the conditions in Syria continue presumably to worsen. We have other things as well. For example, in Britain, we're going to have a vote in June, perhaps as early as June this year, on whether Britain should leave the European Union. Right now, it's too close to call. So we could see one of the main states of the European Union leaving as well. So I think the next year will be fascinating to watch, but deeply alarming to see this European project really coming apart under the strains not only of the refugee crisis, but of course of the continuing austerity Measures, especially if the global economy does take another turn for the worse, so I'm quite um, I'm quite alarmed.
1: And then finally, sort of one uh, comment about the connection between uh, bombing and refugees: the countries that are bearing the brunt of the refugee crisis—Lebanon, uh, mm-hmm. Jordan, uh, Turkey—are the countries that have the greatest incentive to bring the war to an end. But the countries with the greatest ability to bring the war to an end—the more powerful states of Saudi Arabia, Iran possibly Russia, are not suffering the externality of having to accept all these refugees, uh, and therefore don't have a strong of an incentive to bring um, uh, the bloodshed to an end. Turkey is the only country where there's some overlap, but of course Turkey has its own very complicated interests, and that's the topic for another panel, I think. Uh, thank you for coming, and uh, please um, join me in taking a time.